Pete Giuliano, it is Friday, October 28th, 2022. Pete, what number is that? 241-241. Crank it in, Charlie. Crank it in, Robert. Crank it in, Ralph. Crank it in, fellas. Crank it in. Pete, thanks very much for getting up so early in the morning out there in California. I know it's a busy time for you. We're going to try to get 241 here done because we have a, a demanding listening and viewing audience, Pete. They want to, they, 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 they thirst for solder smoke. Yeah, and it's almost Halloween. That's right. <laughs> almost Halloween. Monday is Halloween. Yeah. Have you got your costume ready? Oh, yeah. Does I it just, include I the beret? Just, I just get dressed up and stand at the door. <laughs> <laughs> I like Halloween. I like it when the neighbors come over, the kids come over. It's it's kind of a nice kind of community activity. I kind of like it. Hey, uh, people, we got a few things to mention. Another thing happening on the calendar, Mars is approaching. Mars mm-hmm. is approaching. We are approaching opposition. Every two years, Mars and Earth come into an alignment in which we're closest, closer to Mars than we were at any point during the year. Also, at that point, Mars is in opposition. It's fully illuminated by the sun. It's like a full Mars, like a full Mars version of the full moon. But um, now I have an Apple Watch. Elisa got me an Apple Watch because she said I was bad at answering phone calls because I sometimes left my phone in another room. So she got me an Apple Watch. Now I have the thing strapped on my wrist. But Apple Watches have all kinds of weird little applications that you could put on the screen. And I actually have a Mars Earth monitor on my watch. So I could look at my watch at any time. And it's got a little icon that shows the four inner planets and the sun and their relative positions. And it shows us approaching opposition with Mars. Opposition doesn't take place until like early December. But we're getting there. We're getting closer so every morning I've been going out and observing Mars with my my little eight my little six inch Dobsonian telescope that Elisa got me a few years back. But Pete, I want to mention something else. Look at this. This is one of our props here because we have a viewing audience now. Look at that. Look at that. You know what that is? Is that a Mars? It's a Mars globe. globe. It's a globe of Mars. I actually am an owner of a Mars globe. And I I, I did some research on this. And one other prominent radio amateur had a Mars globe. You know who that was, don't you? Uh, The guy with the uh, Ellers-Mathis cup guy? Not the old man himself, T-O-M. A guy who had his own acronym, T-O-M. Hiram Percy Maxim. Of the double A double R L, he had a globe, a Mars globe, because they were in Mars mania back then. And now I, like T O M, have a Mars globe. I will keep you guys posted as we as we approach opposition. Hey, uh, one other thing, I got to report, Pete, D X C C, baby. You're there. Done. Done. I'm not, you know, I'm not going for the confirmation thing. I'm just going whether I worked a hundred countries because I put up the hex beam in July and I said I want to see how long it takes me to work DXCC, and it was longer than I thought and a little bit harder than I thought, but I hit 100 countries a couple days ago. Now I'm at 102, but mm, um, it's, nice. it's, been kind of, it's been kind of fun. It's been fun. The hex beam has made it a lot easier, and there are other things that make it easier these days too. The DX clusters, the, the fact that you can go online and watch the bands that you're interested in. I'm only interested in 12, 17, and 20. And they tell you insta- almost almost instantly when a DX station pops up on one of those bands. They tell you exactly what frequency he's on. There's little comments about what he's doing. So, for example, I've learned that most of, this, that most of the South African stations come at us via long path. But um, 
it's it's a real help because it's not like the old days where you just had to constantly spin that dial up and down up and down looking for dx now it tells you right where it is so anyway dxcc done and i've kind of pledged to get away from dxing now to go back to more normal <laughs> our, our normal kind of rag chewing activity but uh, i don't know it's kind of i kind of keep an eye on, oh, the, on the clusters oh, you're bitten by the bug I know, I know. Hey, but this is all with homebrew gear, too. That's the yes. other thing. And you were the one who mentioned this. But the only rigs I've used in this whole episode was the were the um, the pandemic plywood rigs <laughs> the, that I built out of the shipping material from the uh, the pandemic treadmill. So that, that was fun. 12 meters was surprisingly useful. I made many of the contacts on 12, many of the contacts on 17. 20 was the real, um, I mean, the real workhorse in this whole effort. So, um, but it's been fun. It's been, it's been good. Hey, hey another thing to, I, I just want to mention, I was listening briefly to uh, 40 meters last night for about, I just had about 10 minutes and I turned it on. It was about mm, eight o'clock. The circuit between Australia and the United States was wide open. 40 meters. Yeah. forty yeah, has been like that. 40, uh, it will open up to, to down under. You hear South African stations on, on 40 also. It's usually around gray line period where it's working, but it's when it works, it really works works yeah. well. There's quite a bit of DX there on 40, so conditions are, are are getting better. I mean, it's still erratic as you've noticed, and there's been a lot of uh, solar storms and things like that. But when it's good, it's been it's been good. It's been better. Hey Pete, we are on the wayback machine. We are we have yes. gone eternal eternal no one can wipe us out from the internet they can try <laughs> they can try to take us down the many enemies of solder smoke out there can conspire against us but it will all be for naught because we are on the internet archive the wayback machine a while back there was a story that went around talking about how somebody was uh, was trying to archive a lot of ham radio material and so a number of people wrote to me and said why don't you propose that solder smoke be one of those, one of the first to be archived in this way. And I contacted the, the person, Kay, uh, at, at the Internet Archive, who's a radio amateur. And she was super cooperative, super helpful. I sent her the files. Dino, KL0S, had a really good um, kind of show note compilation of all the podcasts. I sent that along, too. And boom, we are on the archive. I have a picture of it. Up, I have a, a link to it up on the blog. And I feel I feel more secure right now, Pete. I don't think we can be wiped out as easily as some people might like. No, um, no delete key here. No delete. No, key. yeah. And I, I can't actually. If I get the fat finger syndrome, I can't hit like the wrong button and wipe the whole thing out. That wouldn't be good. Um, hey, uh, sticker news. Lex over there in the Netherlands reports that there that that um, our stickers are sweeping, sweeping the old continent. And uh, we, we, we feel quite confident that this is quite a revolution. I, I didn't really know that there's a sticker culture out there, an entire culture of stickers. But there is. And now we in Solder Smoke are participating. So thanks to Lex for, uh, at, for doing that. And uh, thanks for Jesse for coming up with the stickers. And thanks for everybody who's been out there putting them up. We, we kind of need new stickers, I mentioned. You know, yeah, yeah. We do, we do. So we, we, we look to the, uh, the, the sticker community for, su- for suggestions on how to improve our stickers. And you guys know who I'm talking to. So um, think about something, and let's come up with some new stickers to continue the campaign. I mean, 
all these stickers out there, they all can't be about weed and prostitution. There has to be some solder smoke in there also, okay? So we're, we're going to try to do that. We're, do, we're doing our part for American culture, or global culture, I should say. Um, hey, we got, we got to mention um, Parts Candy, one of our sponsors, Carlos up there in Chicago. Man, he is making some great clip leads and alligator leads, test leads, things that you need on your workbench. The, 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 uh, the quote that we've come up with for Carlos's company is, don't scrimp with a crimp. Many of the other alligator leads that they're selling on eBay and Amazon and other places, all they are is two little alligator clips that somebody, probably some machine has gone in there and crimp, crimp. They put it in that. They don't even take the insulation off, Pete. They don't even have the decency to take the insulation off. Forget about soldering. Carlos takes the insulation off and hand solders that alligator clip to the wire. So you don't have to worry about that crimp. Many times with these old, old, old test leads, I would think, wow, that stage is not working at all. And why wasn't the stage working at all? Because the power wasn't making it through the alligator clip, all right? Don't run the risk on that. Don't, don't mess up your whole day. Don't scrimp with a crimp. Go with Parts Candy. Their link is on the Solder Smoke blog page, just on the left-hand column. Just clip on the picture there. They multicolored test leads, and and you'll be you'll be and Bob will be your uncle. You'll be you'll be in good shape. Hey Pete, I want to talk about what I've been doing on the bench. Let me go first, then you go. Okay. Um, first, direct conversion receivers. I think you were you were partially responsible for the rage of direct conversion <laughs> receivers that has been sweeping the globe and possibly even Mars. Um, there, uh, but but Farhan in Hyderabad has contributed to this, and Dean KK4 DAS and the Vienna Wireless Society uh, is also in, involved in this global conspiracy. What, what's going on with with uh, with Dean's group, Dean the club that I'm a member of, and uh, and Farhan in Hyderabad is the idea is that DC receivers, direct conversion receivers, are an especially good project for high school students, or for anybody who really wants to get more involved in ham radio. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It's a relatively simple circuit. It's kind of a step up from the, from the mate for the mighty midget. It's not that much of a, of, a, of, a, of a heavy lift. And if you complete the project successfully, you will have built your own SSB, your, your own ham radio HF transceiver, receiver, receiver. And that you will have done something that 90% of all hams never, ever do, built a receiver. And believe me, these receivers that we build this way are, are for real receivers. I mean, you, if you're listening to one, you can forget how simple the circuit is. It's only really four stages involved. And this is something that Farhan always emphasizes. To really understand how ham radio works, you really need to only know about four different circuits. A filter, in this case a bandpass filter. A mixer, various circuits, but we usually use diode mixers. Uh, an oscillator, uh, a VFO, and and that's that's kind of an interesting circuit. And the fourth is the audio amplifier. Uh, okay, Pete, you come on back when you can. Pete's got to jump out. He's got some uh, some uh, some ho- household duties there to take care of, but I'll I'll continue here. So with the direct conversion receivers, we're just trying to keep it simple, and. Hold on a second here. There we go. We're just trying to keep it simple. And um, we've been learning a lot. And so I, I've got a couple questions about the DC receivers. One, 
do we really need 100 dBs of gain? That's a question that I have um, because I had grown up with the literature saying only 100, you need, you need 100 dBs of gain. But I'm running DC receivers now where the total amplification in the receiver is only about 45 dB, and there's some loss in the filters in the mixer. So the question I have is, do we really need 100 dB? I was just saying, Pete, as you put your headphones back in there, I was just saying, do we really need 100 dB of gain in the receiver? I don't know. I, I, this, was, this was one of those things where it was just sort of accepted lore, and I had always believed it. But then I, I built this DC receiver, and I know that I've only got 45 dB of audio amplification, and that's the only amplification in the whole thing. But it works fine. I can hear the band noise. I can hear all the stations. It's fine. One theory that came up at the radio club is that, well, there's just more noise now. So you don't need as much amplification to hear the noise floor. But even though I'm in Northern Virginia, I don't think my noise level here is significantly above what it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I started in ham radio. So I don't know. Maybe we could get by. Maybe it's band dependent. Maybe it depends on whether you're using a headphone, earbuds, or a little 8-ohm speaker sitting down there on the, on the, on the bench. But um, I think it's encouraging because with only 45 dB or so of, of amplifier gain, you can, you can have a, a decent receiver there. Here's the other question that comes up. Do you really need to shield the VFOs? Anytime you mention that you have a problem with your DC receiver, somebody will come at you and say, well, you just need to shield the VFO, as if that's some sort of kind of magical solution. But I got a question about that. I have built, and I'm sure you have too, Pete, built many DC receivers, direct conversion receivers, in which the VFO was not shielded, and it worked perfectly well. There was no microphonics. There was no VFO instability. So if it's possible to build them without that kind of shielding, how necessary really is the shielding? So I don't know about that. Um, we've been coming up with some really interesting designs. Farhan is on the kind of the cutting edge of simplicity here. He's coming up with some really super simple uh, direct conversion uh, receiver designs because he's trying to build stuff that the kids... The high school kids in India can can reproduce easily, so it's almost almost a form of munzing, of kind of removing unnecessary components and stages. So I mean, one of the things I really admire is he's come up with a super simple, super stable Colpitts VFO, where the the frequency determining capacitor and the feedback capacitor is one and the same. He has like two 500 picofarad or 470 picofarad caps in series and boom the center point is the feedback point and it i was skeptical when i first saw it but it but it really works fine um dean and i have been fooling around with um audio amplifiers because we're trying to come up with simplified audio amplifiers we want to break the tyranny of the lm386 pete for too long we have lived under the thumb of the integrated circuit lm386 and so we've been looking at audio amplifiers that are kind of discrete components. They've got to be discrete. So I, I built one that has just two 2N3904s in it in kind of conventional uh, common emitter uh, formation with a, a, a 1,000 to 8 ohm transformer at the end. Those transformers are getting harder to find, but you can find them. You can find them. Mauser has them. And 
I built that. It gets about 45 dBs of gain, and it sounds, it sounds good. It works. But then we were thinking we should be able to do this without using the transformer. So this got me involved in building sort of kind of a discrete component version of the LM386 with push-pull 2N3904, 2N3906 complementary pair transistors at the output. And I got that to work yesterday. Uh, and it, it also produces around 45 dB gain, which is about what you'd get out of an LM386. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. It takes four transistors instead of the two that I have in the other one, but you have four transistors and no transformer versus two transistors and a transformer. So these are the kind of choices that we're having to make. But um, hey, listen, I want to show you. I've got my props here. Look, this is my version. Let me show. I'm going to hold it up here. Look, this is my version of Farhan's um, direct conversion receiver. And one of the main features of it, I mentioned the VFO, but we're using permeability tuned oscillators. Look at that. There's a screw that comes in and out. So you turn it. I was skeptical at first, but man, this thing works like a charm. It works good. It's a 3D printed part. So Dean printed me up a 3D printed circuit here. Look, Farhan still has the LM386 in his for the moment, but I'm sure he's going to see the light and reform and get rid of that ugly bit of integrated circuit construction and go back to the pure and beautiful discrete component construction that you see elsewhere in the circuit. I've built mine on a little bamboo cutting board that I probably picked up at Harris Teeter. And there it is. That's the whole thing. So we're trying to keep it simple and keep it fun. The um, I really like the PTO thing, right? Now, let me tell you something, real quick thing about the PTO. How do you, how do you determine what frequency you're on, right? <laughs> this thing turns around many, many times, right? So you can't just put a dial and sort of track the way I used to, right? I'm used to doing that with a variable capacitor. And you've seen my, 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 my paper and pencil kind of write the frequency and then stick it on the cabinet. You can't do that because it's turned in so many times. So I asked this question. I said, how am I going to solve that problem? The guy who solved it for us was Peter Parker, VK3YE down there in Melbourne. He said, look, he said something simple. He said, look, just take it and put underneath, underneath the screw a ruler and mark the ruler as the screw comes out it moves up, right? And if you have a ruler here and you're viewing it from above, you can see where you are. So look here, here is my dial, my calibrated dial. You could see 7.0 and 7.3 and it's kind of the intermediate points. But I know that when I, if I look at it from above, I'm looking down on the, on the, on the screw, if the screw is between those marks, I'm in the 40 meter band. I could tell whether I'm down in the CW portion or not. The guys at the radio club at Vienna Wireless were laughing at me the other night with this thing. But it's really a very simple, ingenious solution. So three cheers for Peter Parker and for Farhan for pioneering the, um, the, uh, the, the, the brass screw PTO thing. One thing, brass screws or steel screws, what do you think? Uh, brass screws. Okay. And one of the guys at the radio club said to me, why don't you just put a steel screw in there? So I came home and tried it. I took out the brass screw. We're using quarter-inch quarter inch bolts, and I put in a, a, a steel screw in there. And it worked, but not as well as the brass. 
And I had to noodle on this a bit. I had to noodle on this a bit. The solution is really interesting. Brass is not ferrous. So when you're introducing it in there, you're not really introducing anything that changes the permeability of the coil. All you're doing is that is because of eddy currents in the screw, because it's conductive, you're in effect taking turns off the inductor. So as you screw the thing in, you're making it less inductive and the frequency is going up. However, if you take a steel screw or if you take something in there that increases the permeability, you will be decreasing, you'll be increasing the inductance because it's ferrous and you'll be pushing the frequency down. But the steel screw is also conducting, so you also have ferry current, ferry, ferry, uh, you have eddy currents in there. So they're pulling in opposite directions. And this is exactly what I observed. When I put the steel screw in there, it was still changing the frequency, but to a lesser extent than with the brass screw, because you had two opposite kind of physical uh, kind of forces at work. One, you were increasing the permeability. The other, you were, and, and you're increasing the permeability, increasing the inductance. The other, because of the eddy currents, you were decreasing the inductance because, in effect, you were taking turns off the coil. So it'll work with brass. It'll work with, with steel. I have in this one now, I, got, I have a zinc one. I, I think I have zinc in there, all right? So zinc is sort of ferrous, and so the same kind of thing is going on. But, but I think that there's also a point, Bill, with regard to linearity. Yeah. Because the 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 iron based screw, the the relationship between the eddy currents and the permeability change may not be linear. Right. Whereas with the brass, you'll tend to get a more linear function. So, I don't I don't know if you measured that, but one one turn may be twenty kilohertz, another turn two more turns may be twenty two, twenty five. So yeah. I I think it's a linearity issue as well. We have, to, we have to work on the linearity. I haven't, I haven't worked on that yet. But the other thing that people suggest sometimes is when you wind the coil, wind it with varying spaces, spacing as you go in. In other words, sometimes you'll see these coils where they're wound really tight at the bottom and then they get wider and wider as you go on. That might be a way of affecting the linearity. But we're going to have to, we're going to, have to turn this over to the, the PTO uh, International Research Institution, uh, which is headed, by the way, by... Uh, by Nick, M0NTV, over there in, in England. <laughs> I jokingly have appointed him president of the, uh, actually, the glue stick, the glue stick PTO uh, 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 research institution, because this is the second thing that's happening. Glue sticks, Pete. I am into glue sticks. Well, hold on a second before you move on. I have a suggestion for you, uh, kind of a twizzle on Peter Parker's. Yeah, you can buy at Amazon little small mirrors. I remember yeah. I had one of these as a survival mirror when I was in the service. Ah, and yes. You put the mirror down below, put a band around the screw, and as uh -huh. you advance that, you'll see the reflection of that band. So it's, uh, in the in the mirror face, so you'll see that band change, and then you can put the scale on the mirror face. So I mean, it'd be really cool because then it'll look like it's moving along on the mirror you'll get a reflection of that versus just a movement on 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 the uh, on the screw. All right, so you'd have to put um, I would put the mirror down below it yes, like the yes, same thing. Yes. Yes. But I would still have to look down from on top, right? Yes, yes. But the mirror okay. would give a, a little precision to it. 
Well, you've got an idea. You give me an idea here, Pete. How about mounting a mirror or a prism or prism of some sort above? Yes. So that I could look at it directly and then go down. Yes. That's also possible. People have suggested, and our friend ZL2DEX suggested this, and Farhan came up with it. They suggested sort of a mechanical gizmo where you put a string around the screw and the string feeds up and goes through pulleys and comes down and there's a S thirty eighty. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like one of those old Eddie, Eddie Stone dials, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the yeah. Drake two B dial. And I, I went back to both of them. I said, "But geez, you know the the, me- the mechanism for that would be more complicated than all yeah. of the rest of the receiver combined. Yeah, yeah. It would turn into a mechanical monster." But I like your prism and reflector, the mirror idea. So listen, we'll have to turn that over to the Institute for Study. Before you move on to the glue stick, I also thought crossed my mind, instead of building one DCR, build two. And the reason is, once you get one working, you build two, you now have a basis of an SDR receiver. I know. You can take a single VFO output and shift the phase by 90 degrees with a phase shift network, and now you got the basis of your own SDR. Well, we, we, we've been thinking about this. We've been thinking, of, we're taking it one step at a time, but you're, you're definitely right. That is one of the options. And that's one of the beauties of doing yeah. DCR receivers with school kids because you could tell them that it's, it's applicable even in the age of computers. And as a matter of fact, my little Baofeng, look at that. I have a Baofeng transceiver. It's got two direct conversion receivers in the front end. I'll talk about the Baofeng in a minute, but you're right. But for now, we're just trying to get them to build the, uh, the, the, the receiver. And we, there's an interesting idea here we came up with. When we build this receiver with the kids at the local high school, our plan is to build it stage by stage, of course, on separate boards. The very first board will be the VFO board. And the reason is this will give them an immediate feeling of the joy of oscillation. When they finish that VFO board, without having built the rest of it, They'll be able to power that thing up. They have shortwave receivers there at the school, and they have oscilloscopes. So they will have made something with their own hands that produces RF energy. And we think that'll be a real kind of morale kick for them. So that'll be like the first stage of the construction. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. We're probably going to start after January. But um, but right right now they're in the phase where they're giving kids the uh, – the exams that they're, they're they've they've put them through or through the course and they're going to take their exams and they're all going to become at least technician class radio amateurs so that's going to be great they're going to get their call signs and everything so it's 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 kind of a fun project and and we're we're having a lot of a lot of we're having a really good time with it but hey glue sticks glue sticks are the rage pete they are the rage they buy stock the, <laughs> buy the, stock the few, <laughs> buy, buy stock in elmers the few, it's pretty scary when you say the future of of radio amateurs, the future of ham radio is in glue sticks, my friend. It's almost like the line from the from the uh, from the uh, from the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman way back. Plastics. He said, oh, God, "I got one word for you: plastics." <laughs> so I got two words for you: glue sticks. Um, look, so the idea about the glue stick is it's it's very similar to the PTO idea, but you take the glue stick, you open it up. Let me open it up here. You got the glue, right? Get rid of the glue. And once you get rid of the glue, just take all the glue out. There's a screw that moves down the center that moves this thing called the cup up and down as you turn it, right? You replace the glue with what I've used as a piece of number six or number two 
uh, powdered iron material, and I just put it in there. I, I wound the coil around this thing, and then as you turn the knob, you're moving the ferrous material up and down inside, and this becomes a true permeability-tuned coil. You hook it up to the oscillator, and Bob is your uncle, and you've got this. Now, one of the problems is you don't have you, you, you have no way to read the frequency here because nothing's moving out. You can't use the neat trick with, with this thing because it doesn't work. But you don't have something moving in and out, which is attractive to some folks. Um, I have one here. Look, I built. I want to show you. This is, this is what I built. Look, look at that. Because I wanted some solid construction. Look, so I took some, just some, some scrap wood, and I cut out holes about the right size for the, the glue stick, the Elmer's glue stick. Now, there are various kinds of glue sticks out there. I want to recommend this one, Elmer's. Elmer's Giant Glue Sticks. I got this at Staples. This is important because some of the glue sticks have screws and cups in them where the cup is really loose on the screw. And this you get you get like backlash or sloppy tuning, right? I tried that with the with the Uhu sticks out of Germany. No, they don't work this well. Sorry, Uhu, but uh, you're you're gonna lose the you're gonna lose the uh, the PTO market here, my friends, unless you straighten up your act and tighten up the screws. <laughs> but with this one, the the cup seems to fit quite snugly on the screw. So there's no kind of dead space when you change direction and when you're tuning it. So it works out really well. I, I, I really like these. And so I've built a number of PTOs on this. However, the guy who, there are, there are a few people that need to be thanked here. First, Paul Clark, WA1MAC. Paul is the one who sparked this revolution. And he told me, he said he had written to, to me back in 2008. Pete, I think this was before you got involved. But... He wrote to me in 2008 telling me about the glue stick thing, and I must have been busy with other stuff. The kids must have been in school or something. I don't know, but I, I just missed it, and I didn't pay enough attention to it. The glue stick idea has been around for a while. George Dobbs wrote about it at one point. Uh, people have talked about it, but it never really got the attention that it's getting now, and that's really because the attention is coming from Paul, WA1MAC, Solder Smoke, and also in England, the big ad advocate of glue sticks right now is Nick, M0NTV. Just this week, he did a really good video on his construction of PTO, uh, glue stick PTO uh, oscillators. You really should check it out. Go to YouTube, just search for M0NTV or uh, Nick, M0NTV or glue stick PTOs, and you'll find his video. I'll try to put a link to it up on the blog, but it's it's really, really cool. Um, one of the questions we had, you know these 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 bolts on these on the PTO here, they're quarter inch bolts, right? But number twenty thread or number twenty eight thread? Twenty eight. One one is coarse, twenty. One is fine, twenty eight. Coarse is easy to get, fine is harder to get. Uh, I think you're right. Twenty is the way to go. Why would you say twenty, Pete? No, I said twenty eight. You said twenty eight. Okay, I I started with twenty eight. And then I went and ordered from Bezos number, um, well, I, had, I started with 20 and then I ordered 28. I got the 28 and I don't really notice much of a difference. It's not, it doesn't, it, it, I thought it would be like a big difference. I thought it would be finer, slower tuning. I thought it might grip the, grip the, the nut might grip the bolt a little bit better. 
not not much difference. So I think you're okay with either 20 or 28. Either way is, is okay. Um, Dean came up with an innovation where he put some Teflon plumber's tape onto the screw. And he said that's, that really smoothed out the tuning quite a bit. And it, it caused also the, the nut to grab the bolt a little bit more firmly. And that is true. However, that created a problem. It's important to ground the screw physically, to electrically ground the screw to the, to, to the chassis. So that's what I have this little piece you can see here. I have this little piece of solder wick that goes in, contacts with the nut, comes down and hits the chassis. That eliminates or helps eliminate the hand capacitance effect. However, if you put the Teflon tape there, it insulates the bolt. So Dean has tried to rub it, rub it off. He's had some success, but that, that is a difficulty there. I, I just have gotten used to the fact that it wobbles a little bit. I've also put like a, a board up on one of mine that with a one quarter inch hole, so it holds it steady. Hey. But enough of the, uh, the, the glue stick uh, PTOs. Those who are not into this right now are all falling asleep. Uh, <laughs> but, but believe me, the future is in glue sticks. And now let's talk about an SI-5351. <laughs> <laughs> and I have one right here. <laughs> Look, uh, I never thought that I would have, uh, that I would own a Baofeng 2-meter 440 uh, transceiver. But I do. Billy got one a while back. Billy got one. Unbeknownst to me, he picked it up, and I got it. I think he wanted to use it to talk to his friends, but I found it. He gave it to me, and here it is. And now that I'm more active in the Vienna Wireless Society, they have repeaters. I have pulled this thing out, and I have gotten interested in two meters. And you can do amazing things with these little things. And I carry it around. I take it with me when I'm on the bike. I want to put a better antenna on my bicycle so I can go bicycle mobile better with these things. But it's kind of fun. It's needed. You, you take this around. I can, I've, I've called Dean on it, talked to Dean about our projects and everything else. You know, it, it's something to consider. Pete, I know you're spending a lot of time in waiting rooms and stuff, you know. I, I got one. one. Yeah, use it. Try it. You know, you know I, there's well, a lot of, you know, two meters is not really the most friendly band. You no, know, but the, it's got an FM radio in it, too. Stand. It does. I, yeah, it does. I hit this little button here and it goes to FM radio and I listen to that. Yeah. So yeah, you should. You might want to give it a try, you know. And, and it's it's not all that it's not all that bad. Hey Pete, before we get to your bench, Shameless Commerce Division. Yes. You know uh, we're we're um, we're talking about mostly DIY RF. This is uh, Todd, our friend Todd Carney, uh, K7 TFC, has started this new company called Mostly DIY RF. And he has got some really fantastic kits there. you got to visit his website. Just go to the, the right-hand column on the Solder Smoke blog page, and you'll see a link. Just click on the picture. Click on the logo. It'll take you to his page. He has made some recent additions to the, uh, to the catalog that he has there. He's selling a, a, seven, a, a discrete component 741 chip. Woo! I like it. Soon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a suggestion here. Hey, Todd. How about a discrete component LM386 chip, all right, made with discrete components? That would be that would be fun and wouldn't be really that hard to do. I've kind of done it already here in the N2CQR laboratories. Um, he's also making available a QER filter kit, which, which should be interesting for a lot of guys. Also, I want to say something. I, we have to kind of keep this quiet because no final decisions have been made on it yet, but... Uh, 
A Mate for the Mighty Midget kit is in the offing. Mate for the Mighty Midget kit coming up. Pay attention. Check it out. Mostly DIY RF. Check out his webpage. The link is on the Solder Smoke blog. I think it's got some cool stuff happening out there, Pete. Yeah. Uh, hey, I wanted to talk a little bit about that QER filter. Yeah. Because I've had a, a one or two emails with Todd about that. And he's going to sell it in three different variants. One is just a plain board. Yeah. Another one is the board and the crystals, and you put it together. And the third option is he builds the whole thing for you. So I'm not sure where he is in that. But one of the things that I suggested to him was to look at different filter frequencies so that it would give the, the maximum usability. Like, for instance, everybody's got a 9 megahertz filter. problem is... 17 meters. It doesn't <laughs> and, work too well. It doesn't work too well. And I said, look at the 49152. And I said, because that works on all the bands and you don't have that problem. And uh, so he said he's been looking at that. And, he, and he, he's also looking at the quantity buys, the cost cost of crystals. You know, there's some some of these crystals are more attractive. And he says, if you're buying a thousand of them, that's that's big change. You know, 10 cents makes a big difference. So anyway, he's he's working on on that so if anybody has any favorite filter frequencies they might email todd let him know because i know he's doing some research on what what frequencies would they be provided in i think he was looking at 11 megahertz 11068 or something like that yeah yeah I, I, it, it could be really good but but good great suggestions there pete yeah um hey so are you done with shameless comments because i had an input on that go ahead yeah I tripped over this, but have you looked at Bezos and radio standard broadcast and FM radios? Have you looked at any of those? No. What has he got? Uh, there's a whole new bent in this field. They're building retro radios, the retro cases, but they got oh, Bluetooth yeah? in them and everything else. Oh, I mean, yeah, 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 it, yeah, yeah. It, it looks just like something from the 1950s, and it's not one or two. <laughs> I mean, everybody's coming out with this. And some of these are really cool looking, and they even have an old-style portable transistor radio. Remember the first transistor radios came out? Oh, yeah. But it's got Bluetooth in it, you know, so all kinds of things like that. And and so if you're doing some shopping for Christmas, go to the Solder Smoke blog, <laughs> click and on yes, Amazon. Check this out. Check this out. I mean, I, I looked at I mean, it makes you drool <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's the days of old, but yet it's all modern circuitry in, inside. So oh, I, wow. I I was just, okay. just I, I don't know what somehow they all got together because it's not the same manufacturer you know it's a whole series of different manufacturers so it's a really cool looking. We'll have to check it out. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Pete, and thank you, Jeff Bezos, for bringing this stuff to us. Bezos yeah. comes through again. Yes, yeah. he's having tough times lately, but I think he's going to pull through. He's going to be all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Pete, I know you haven't had much on your bench because you've been so busy with other things. But tell you got a few things here that you've been working on. You've been hanging in there, keeping that homebrew flame alive out there in Newberry Park. Well, I, I, one of my latest blog postings says um, my days of homebrewing are probably over. I mean, I just just don't have the time, and I can tell because there's no hardware coming coming in the mailbox. I mean, there's no parts for Mauser or Dizuki because time's just not there. So you just uh, you reconcile yourself, you know. I had a lot of fun, but taking on any projects is just just not in the cards. But uh, one thing that uh, I did want to share, and you had this on the agenda, was the the Bidex, the Bidex twenty. 
It's 20 years old. <laughs> 20 years old. Pete, one thing that struck me, I saw what you wrote about that. One thing that struck, well, two things that struck me. One, how long it took me to get in the BidX revolution. I, I waited about 10 years before I got involved in it. And the second thing was how quickly you got into it because you built one almost immediately. I mean, yes. I think Farhan put out the schematic and within weeks or months, Max, you had built one already. Yes. So that was really cool. Yeah, and I, I want to share some things that I did. Uh, I looked at his design. I said, that's pretty cool. But he had a 10 megahertz IF. And here in the States, I was living in the Seattle area. Boulder, Colorado is not that far away. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be on time every time. <laughs> you know, with, with WWV bleeding through. So I put a 9 megahertz uh, filter in there. And the other thing is, um, I uh, looked at uh, adding an LCD display. So I added an EI9GQ uh, uh, Huff and Puff stabilizer with the uh, LCD. So mine, first one I built, had a digital frequency readout in it, had the electronics, and that VFO didn't drift because it locked in place. Even then, we saw the roots of Pete's <laughs> devotion to the SI-5351. Yeah. Even then. Yeah. I told <laughs> the, the other thing is, I I was, when I first looked at it, I said, washers, nylon washers. Who uses nylon washers? Well, that's what was available in India. So I converted all the nylon washers over to ferrite cores, and then I submitted that, and I don't know if anybody used it, but that was in the file section of the BIDX20. So my build actually had the ferrite, all the all the cores well, converted over to ferrites. I think I I was the one who, I was one of those who, who benefited from what you just described because when I built my first BIDX, it was for 17 meters and I didn't use the nylon washers. I did use the, 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 the toroidal cores that yeah. you mentioned. So I probably benefited from that. But I, you know, I, one of my, my favorite stories about the BIDX20 is the fact that he was so careful about keeping the cost down because he was thinking about uh, hams in India that in the end, he, you could build the entire thing. If you had to buy every single part, you could do it for about 300 rupees, which at the time was about $5 US. So I, I, I took great delight in telling hams here in the United States that I was trans talking to them on a transceiver a $5 transceiver, if you want it. I said, well, you know, I splurged a little on mine, so mine probably cost 40 <laughs> instead yeah. of five. But um, five bucks, and they, they, they would find that quite some shocking and in some cases disturbing and in some cases unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, there are two other things I want to mention about uh, the BIDX, and this deals with uh, how I built it. Uh, at that time, I was using single-sided copper vector board, which is really good good for doing, you know, point-to-point -point wiring, not SMD. And I ran out of board, and it was a weekend. So I made my own board. <laughs> I, took a, I took a piece of perf board out of This is dedication. You're hearing this? And I hand-drilled out all those holes. <laughs> <laughs> I went cross-eyed. But there's another point about the design. I now, did, did, you, now did, you, did you drill holes that you were not going to use? Did you just go ahead and yes, religiously? Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> Yes, I did. And uh, as a matter of fact, I have pictures of that you can see where towards the end there, I got a little, you can see where I sort of came towards the end. But I want to talk about the design. That design is so robust. Uh, I pulled out all the 2N3904s that are in that, that rig. 
and I had a bags of transistors, NPNs, and I just plugged them in there. You did. You were using plug-in transistors. I remember uh, that. Yes. I remember that. And and it worked. There was only one circuit that was touchy that you had to be concerned about. As a matter of fact, I have a bag of two N seven O sixes which is the premier RF device of the early 1970s. I mean, you look at some of the stuff it was built, it has a 2N706 in it. And uh, so I I found only one circuit that it didn't work well in. That was in the BFO. And I think the junction capacitance of the 2N706, when you plug that into the circuit, was affected by it. So, uh, But it's a robust design because I had it working with all, all kinds of tr weird transistors. As long yeah. as they were MPN, it worked. That's it, because you know, because they were feedback amplifiers, because the, the gain was determined not by the device, but by the feedback network that he built around yeah. it, which was, which I, I agree, that's really one of the best designs. Also, he was none, none of those amplifiers were were running close to the like the bleeding edge. None of them were at the point where they were even close to breaking into oscillation. The gain was kept under control by the feedback network, really. Yeah. So it was it was excellent. It was perfect for not only for us but for for uh, for the Indian radio amateurs who were trying to build it with with limited, very limited test gear. Substitute and anything supplies. in there, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I really you know I, I've been a big fan of BitX all along. I only found one problem. You found the same problem was that wire going from the receive section to the relay. Yeah, getting feedback. Put another relay in, and problem solved. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's 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 interesting because you know. Farhan is—he's he's such an accomplished engineer, but he's also very much one of us, and he's, he's very much the radio amateur. So he's not at all averse to admitting that he changed things as he went along, and that was one area where I think they changed the circuit. One thing you'll notice also in the early BIDX, he said that you should take the whole RF amplifier and build it in a separate box and keep it separate. And of course, that changed over time. I don't think you and I ever did that really. My BIDX 17 had the RF amplifier in the same box. And so uh, certainly that was the case with the BIDX 40 module that came out, the, the micro BIDX that followed it. All those rigs had the RF amplifier in the same box. But the other thing that's going on, I think uh, Farhan, you know, the design, the original design probably didn't have a whole lot of the gain distribution, OIP, IP3, dynamic range calculations that Farhan's doing now. Now he's doing it, and it makes for, I think, far more robust and far more kind of uh, engineering defensible rigs. But that, I don't think a lot of that stuff was happening 20 years ago when he first designed the BIDX, which he, he designed, by the way, as we always say, we always point out. On the airplane. Out, <laughs> in the airplane. Cocktail <laughs> napkins. Calculator and a notebook. So three cheers for Farhan and yeah, the BIDX yeah. revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm surrounded by BIDX rigs. The rigs that I was describing that worked DXCC, two of them here are just really derivatives of the BIDX. One works on 75 and 20. The other works on 17 and 12. But at their heart, they are they are BIDX rigs. The other thing, one other story about the BIDX, you know, I remember I was asking Farhan, I said, look, how can I determine the, the input impedances that are faced by the crystal filter? Because I have to design the crystal filter, and I need to know what the, what the impedances are on, on either end, both in transmit and receive. How can I do that? Because they're going to be... They're going to be different when you're on transmit going one way. They're going to be different when you go and receive in the other way. And that's when Farhan told me, he said, look, if you really want to do that, 
you know, rigorously and carefully, you have to go with TIA amps, termination insensitive amps. It was about that time that Wes and Bob Klopsky wrote their article about termination insensitive amplifiers. And that's where we got into the, the TIA business. Or you and I used to joke, we used to call them Zias. Zias or TIA. Zias because it's Italian, but it's, it means the same thing, termination insensitive or impedance insensitive, yeah. So, I mean, great stuff. I mean, three, the Bidex has really kind of revolutionized homebrew ham radio. The only other change I made is he used uh, two diodes in the balance modulator. I used four. Right. I, I yeah. just have this thing about four diodes versus two. I know. I mean, I'm having the same, Dean and I are having the same discussion in the DC receivers. I always went with the two, and, and they, worked, they worked fine. But uh, I'm having much better results with four in the DC receivers. And I think part of it is in the DC receiver with gain so limited, I, I do think you have more conversion loss in the two diode mixer than you do in the four. So that, that discussion continues. But hey, you know, I just wanted to mention also, you know, we mentioned mostly DIY RF. Many of Todd's kits, many of the things that he's selling are spinoffs or, or kind of derivatives. The, the TIA amps, he's selling boards for the TIA amps. And this is something with that emerged AGC. from- With AGC, with uh, AGC. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, this is the stuff that's emerged from discussions about the BIDX and uh, and Bob and Wes's his article. So, great stuff. So, thanks for pointing out the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the BIDX yeah. 20. We should we should celebrate. We should have like a, a BIDX meeting on the air or something yeah, on the there anniversary. Yeah, you go. Dig out your BIDX. The only uh, other thing that I, I have a new new radio in the, in the shack, the Proficio, which is an SDR radio. And actually... Uh, you have uh, an opportunity to build build one from essentially a board and add the parts. They're all mostly some SMD and through-hole parts, or you can buy a completed assembly. I just don't have time to build build stuff anymore. So I bought a completed assembly, and I'm evaluating it right now. But I learned something very interesting with, uh, with the use of the Proficio. It all depends what SDR software you use. The Proficio comes with an in-house set of software that they develop for the radio, but you can also use it with HD, SDR. You, I've used it with Quisk. And it's kind of interesting to see if you only use one software, you'd say, gee, this is really kind of marginal or lacking. You use one another and say, man, this is really good. So keep that in mind sometimes that uh, depends what software you use the real performance you get out of it. So uh, I'm experimenting with that. But uh, along the way, I needed a computer, a Windows 10 computer, and I found one at Jeff Bezos for $76. A nice <laughs> Windows 10 64-bit with Windows 10 Pro on it, $76. Thank it's an you, H Bezos. Yeah, HP. It's an HP. Man, I need, I need one of those because I, 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 I'm, I'm finding that I need a sound studio, Pete. I can't be keep doing this in the shack because like last time I messed up the audio because I was moving stuff around, okay? I hope hope it's better today. But that would be really cool. But you had some you had some computer woes there. It was it wasn't all uh wine and roses with the new computer, oh, right? Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is funny. I I you know, you set the computer up and it it, it was all okay. And and then I said, "Well, gee, I'm I got this in the garage. It'd be nice if I spot something to print it. So I tried to hook into the network printer, and no matter what I did, I could not get it to work on the network printer. It just would not work. And finally, I did some Internet research, and I said, well, 
this isn't going to work because I want to print this out to read it. So I went to my main computer and I went to the same site and I said, okay, we'll print this. And I hit the print button and my main computer said, printer offline. Oh, man. <laughs> the power was off. Somehow I had turned the power off. So the minute I turned the power on, then I was able to link up. But it was really strange because when it, it did connect, it said, you need to give us an SMA number. I said, what the hell is an SMA number? So it says, and then the instruction says, you'll find it in the compu on the printer. So I said, I never saw an SMA number on the on the printer. So I go to the printer, and there is a sheet printed on the printer <laughs> with the SMA. You see, Pete, everything you're saying now is an excellent argument for this kind of stuff. I'm holding up. I'm holding up the direct conversion discrete with discrete component receiver. Yeah, yeah. And when Pete was telling the story, I sent him. I, I happened to come across a, a cartoon. A meme on the internet. It showed you this guy sitting in front of his computer and he's holding his hands up in triumph and he says, Yes, I got a different error message. I'm making progress. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I did. But computer uh, woes. Yeah, sometimes the not so obvious is the obvious. <laughs> I, I know. Well, well my, my, my printer will turn itself off periodically and I have to remember to go turn it back on. It's but I, it to never occurred to me the printer was off. I just thought there was something that that I, I it wouldn't write. You know, other other stuff that I've done that automatically recognized it. Uh, one final thing is uh, you sent me a picture of of a guy that was building a nostalgia shack. He was oh, building yeah, a, a nostalgia shack, and this nostalgia shack that he was building had a uh, Henry Radio Temple One. Had a sideband engineer's SBE33 and a national radio NCX3, and he had them set up there, and he had a shelf, and he and he was operating these different mediums. And believe it or not, I've got one of those, <laughs> each one of those, three of them. But with judicious shopping, the total bill was $199 for all three pieces. So I'm I mean, if you. you if you can if you can do this, some shopping, and some of them will need a little repair work. Now the Temple One was just full of crap, and I had to clean the whole thing up. But the radio works; they all work, and they all work. You know, you compare them. Actually, I compared to some of the homebrew radios I built, and some of the homebrews <laughs> work a lot better than those commercial boxes. Well, you in know, the 60s. yeah, but 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 the the good thing about those old radios is that they have. They actually, even in CW, have character. They have personality. And I, I know this because lately I've been just listening with the direct conversion receiver on 40 CW. I just leave it on sometimes. And every, every once in a while I'll walk in the shack and I'll hear the CW coming out. The CW is perfect. The guy is obviously, he obviously knows how to grab the telegraph key. But there's a there's a little a little bit of something different in there. You can't say it's chirp. You can't say it's click. It just sounds a little bit different from Buzz. the mass-produced commercial rigs. So what I will sometimes do is I'll jot down the call sign. Then I'll go to qrz.com and I'll look it up. And sure enough, he's got a boat anchor station. He's got some really interesting old piece of gear or a homebrew piece of gear. And I'll say, man, that's th three cheers for him, you know? And so that's, that's, that's great stuff. And I, I was glad to send you that picture. I'll, I'll continue to send you that stuff every once in a while, Pete. And of the three, only one has a linear dowel. 
Well, the linear dial, it was it was possible. They could have done it, but they didn't all do it. Like you always I point just, out, why just, didn't they do it? It was it, the, the solution was there. I just, they didn't even need special capacitors. They, they could do it with regular yeah, capacitors, just yeah, if they chose the, yeah. the padding a little bit more carefully. Yeah. You know, um, the uh, Hammerland was, uh, I think Halicrafters were particularly bad with that. Who, who did the SP600? Uh, uh, the Hammerlin SP600. Hammerlin, yeah. The Hammerlin SP600 was, I think, yeah. was was pretty bad in that regard. It would all bunch up at one end. And it didn't have to. Yeah. They could have they done it. I mean, Drake did it. Halicrafters did it with the HD37 linear, very linear. Drake, very linear. So it was possible. And none of these guys were using any real specialty capacitors. It was mostly just a matter of padding and trimming. Yeah. Uh, hey. Finally, the thing on the bench, uh, I was contacted by a ham from China. And interested, I saw that. Interested in building the simple SSB transceiver, and and I willingly shared the information with him. But I also put a caution there and said, "Look, I better not see this as a commercial product project <laughs> without recognizing this came from from me." I said, yeah, yeah. "One of one of your countrymen uh, is pursuing my direct conversion receiver design, and he's it looks like it may end up a commercial product." And I said, "You know." I did all the hard work, <laughs> and, and all they did is copy the design and, and produce it. So I said, you know, I willingly do this, but I do want to caution you that you saw that the email. Yeah, that I, I saw sent. it, and he, and he said, yeah, he kind of just said, yeah, but that's not me, and I, I kind of I understood what he was saying. I thought it was pretty cool you were getting contacts from China like that. I mean, yeah. we, we, get, we get very few. You know, one of the questions I've always had is why do we see so few Chinese radio amateurs? For example... I'm, I'm watching the DX Spots page all the time. I come into Shack since I got into my DXCC thing there. I have not seen a single Chinese station on there in, in, the, in the last three months. You see everything else. You see Indonesia, lots of Japan, lots of Australia, lots of Africa, not a single Chinese station. But I got some insight into this at the radio club meeting. I was talking to uh, one of the radio club members, Ron Payne, WA6, Y-O-U, who spent a lot of time during his working years in India. And I said to him, I said, hey, Ron, how come I see so few Indian stations on the spotter page? Because it's a huge country. It's right over the pole. You know, you could do it long path or short path, and you should see more of them. I see Indians there, but it's infrequent. And he just said, hey, it's a country with, you know, 1.3 billion people in it. And there are 16,000 radio amateurs. 16,000 out of 1.3 billion. He said it's just really difficult to get a ham radio license in India. He said it's, you know, it's like they do, they, you know, they do all kinds of investigations on you. You have to have all kinds of paperwork. It's very difficult. So it's just really there, a matter of numbers, that, it, that it's, it's hard. So um, I'm sure a, a similar dynamic but with big differences has taken place in China but it's a shame that we don't see more activity from China and 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 India that it'd be great because it'd be, be wonderful to work all these DX stations but I'm glad you were in contact with the uh, with with uh, the Chinese radio ham that was kind of kind of interesting hey Pete let's do mailbox before you have to you have to cut out man right. you gotta get it done here we're, we're approaching the one hour mark um, solder smoke mailbag we heard from uh, Ken ns7v we're glad you're listening, Ken. Thanks very much. Graham, G3MFJ, sent me Sprat on a stick. I guess you got one too, huh? Really cool. 
Very good. Thank you very much, Graham. And thanks to GQRP again. If you're not a member of GQRP and not getting sprat, what is it, Pete? You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, so get right. Hey, hey, and that works too. I immediately went to 187 and there I am, right on the cover. There you go, man. There you go. 187, the beginning of the, the beginning of the Giuliano era here at Soderspoke. That's great. Hey, uh, a guy that I've been been hearing from that we've been talking to for a long time is Dino Kale Zero S down in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, he I, I had mentioned several times my HP eighty six forty signal generator. He talks about he built a, a number of years back the HP eighty six forty B Junior, which was something that Wes Haywards had designed. It's a, it's a basically a simple signal signal generator kind of. Uh, almost like it's not really a version of the HP 8640 because the HP 8640, man, is a piece of work, but it does the same kind of stuff. I mean, HP 8640 has like a, a 240 gigahertz cavity oscillator in there at, at the root and everything else is derived from that. So it's really an exotic piece of gear. Hey, but I, I spoke to also, I spoke to Dean's um, Radio Club Builders Group. That was a lot of fun. And they sent me this fantastic mug, the K4RC mug, with my name and call sign on it. I have it displayed here prominently. Thanks very much. And I mentioned that Dino had sent the show notes for the archivization, the, the, uh, the immortality of the Solder Smoke podcast. So there we go. I mentioned Nick, M0NTV, now president of the Glue Stick Permanibility Tuned Oscillator Research Institute in England. Um, you you he, know, uh, he's such an interesting guy when you look at his YouTubes, but in his day job, he's a minister. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that. Well, he follows in very good good steps there you, with you your know, jobs. You know, his email is Nick the Vic, and the Vic oh, is he's a vicar. I didn't realize that. Yeah, wow. Nick the Vic. But, <laughs> but he is really an impressive and a prominent home brewer. And, he, and listen, he has a spectrum analyzer. Yeah. Yeah. I want a spectrum analyzer. <laughs> yeah. All I got is the tiny SA thing. Pete, you want a spectrum. Do yeah. you have a spectrum analyzer? No. Well, we need one. Yeah. We need two. Well, All actually, right. I do have one. Oh, okay. And and it's part of the SDR setup. Oh, okay. You, yeah. One of the software you click on that and it becomes a VNA. Yep. I want to get. I want to. I want to get one too. Okay. So we'll, we'll work on that. I got the. I got the tiny SA. Um, Mark Alpha Alpha. Oh yeah, wait. Nick also put out recently. Uh, uh, Nick put out something on his Shelf Seventeen. Nice, nice rig. Nice rig. Good, good work, Nick. Uh, terrific. Did, stuff. Did you great notice videos. what he used? L brackets, big L brackets, and he drilled a hole, and then it becomes like a control thing. So you, you, you I, I really like that. Yeah. I want to do something similar for the RF connectors, for the UHF yeah. and the BNC connectors on the back. Yeah. I want to get something like that. Yeah, oh, it's sturdy. Good, sturdy. Good, good stuff from from Nick. Check it out. It's just just go to YouTube and search for M0NTV or Nick the Vic. Nick, you'll you'll find his website there and his his YouTube channel. Great stuff. Uh, Mark Alpha Alpha Seven Tango Alpha recently read the Solder Smoke book. Really liked it. And like a lot of people found that he things in there that he could really identify with. So thanks for letting us know about that, uh, Mark. Uh, Steve, Echo India 5 Delta Delta is putting out the Connaught Regional News Magazine. Ooh, it's, nice. Wow. I mean, it, 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 just, it just made everybody envious. Everybody who read it said, wow, I wish my radio club would put out a magazine like this. All kinds of great technical content in there. Great stuff. And I think I have on the blog, I talked about this and where you can get the link so that you too can receive the Connaught Ireland Regional News, covering all the radio clubs in that section of Ireland. Great stuff. Uh, Dave, K-A-W-P-E, 
talked, he said, he, Dave always sends us these really nice, thoughtful messages. I always like getting them. And the one he sent was about planting seeds in ham radio, about sometimes you plant the seed and you don't know where it's going to go. And then later on, you find out that it launched somebody into an, a lifetime of, of hobby and ham radio and, 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 and great stuff. Thanks for sharing that to us with us. Uh, I mentioned Peter, VK3YE, down there in Melbourne with his really excellent idea for the ruler frequency readout, which has now been modified by Pete Giuliano with his suggestion that we use mirrors and a prism. We'll work on that. Thank you, Peter, for that. Michael, we get a lot of great messages from Michael, AG5VG. His PTO. He he made a PTO. He did. Yeah. It was fantastic. Glue stick, a glue stick PTO. He made it, and he put a video up there. Again, search for Michael's uh, uh, videos. Just go, just search for AG5VG or glue stick PTOs. I mean, how many videos could there be, right? Yeah, one thing about his video, he showed you an oscilloscope uh-huh. of the output. Clean. Yeah. Nice. Clean all the way through. Stable. I know. Yes. I know. I know it made you an SI5351 guy. <laughs> reconsider <laughs> pete's about to go glue stick on us here and somebody somebody was i think it was dean was suggesting that i've been so deeply into glue sticks that perhaps i've been sniffing the glue no no <laughs> then we get we've been getting some great email from tobias feltus he's a polymath and he's got uk and italian connections great emails from him and i think he, he was, was he the guy who got the hedy lamar tattoo yes Yes, there you go. A Hedy Lamar tattoo and a tattoo of a radio antenna and a tower. Cool wow. stuff. Thank you, Tobias. We got some ni- nice email from our buddy over there in France, uh, Alan, F4EIT. Oh, yes. He is also building DC receivers. There's also in Germany, DC receivers are being built. DC receivers, Pete, are sweeping the globe. Also, the guy in China, you know, or who may be commercially, somebody, somebody, not him, but somebody may be commercially reproducing yours. Um, I got an email from Michael S., no call sign, but he said that he was reading the Solar Cider Smoke book and he saw that he was in the Marine Corps about the same time that I was in the Army and we were both working on um, equipment that is basically known as pulse code modulation with time division multiplexing. And I remember trying to fix those things. And yeah, so it was, it was good to to meet up with somebody who was doing something similar. Hey, Alan Yates. Alan Yates is an Australian radio amateur who's done great stuff. Lately, he hasn't been doing a whole lot of ham radio stuff. I think he moved to the States and was working out in California or somewhere on the West Coast. But Alan was the guy who inspired my early build of the Trivial Electric Motor, which was a really a homebrew electric motor. Billy and I made it when he was a little kid. Great fun. I still have bits and pieces of it around here. But... We were, we were researching some transformers that Dean found on Amazon. Amazon was selling these transformers, little red transformers, and they promised to be um, 1,300 to 8 impedance transformation, right? Whoa, we, we bought them right away. It was like five bucks for five of them or something like that. Dean got some, I got some, and I plugged them into one of my receivers, and it wasn't working so well. Didn't, didn't really, wasn't really doing it. So then I looked in the comments section under the Amazon sales page, and there's a very thoughtful, technically well-reasoned argument there about why these transformers are not doing what they're advertised to do. And it came from Alan Yates. And as soon as I saw Alan Yates' name on there, I said, man, 
this is for real. This guy found the problem, and Alan described it exactly. So basically, the problem was if you put hung eight ohms off one end, you weren't going to. It wasn't going to look like a thousand ohms at the other end. It was going to look like two hundred ohms, which has a big significant difference there. So thank you for pointing that out, Alan. Alan, we wish you'd get back into ham radio. We also get great comments from Todd uh, VE7BPO, who who is sometimes known as Vasily Ivanenko. All right, Todd gives great comments. We, lo- we love all of his comments on the blog. Thanks very much, Todd. Todd is a really proficient uh, home brewer, recently gone into radio astronomy, and he, he runs the QRP Home Brewers Popcorn QRP yes. website that yes. we've seen. On the, on, the, on the YouTube channel, Dale, W4OP, has come in, providing uh, comments on, on all kinds of different things. I've, get, I've got an email from Wes, W7ZOI, um, and this is one of the great things about the hobby is that you're in contact with people who are at really at the cutting edge, who, who played really historic roles in developing and building some of this stuff. Um, and 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 we we talked earlier about Farhan. Farhan, he hey, listen, Pete. Farhan sent me an SBIDX. He sent me one. I have it still in the box. I'm going to take it with me to the Dominican Republic. This is going to be one of my Dominican wintertime projects there. Um, also, we mentioned Todd, K7TFC, uh, and his mostly DIY RF. But Todd also made a plug for a book, Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter by Dan Sachs. One final thing, and then we got to get out of here, Pete. Jim Olds, my buddy, he's down in, in Arlington, Virginia, and he's been building. He built a QRP transmitter, and I think he was working on a DC receiver. But, uh, but Jim is a, a neuroscientist and provides a lot of Good advice on that field. My son is working in the field, so I always, I'm always happy to talk to Jim about what's happening in that area. Pete, that brings us to another end of, a, yes. of an episode. Yes. I thank you for getting up so early and for, for making you know such use of your, your very limited uh, spare time. But thanks very much, Pete. You bet. You bet, Bill. And uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Don't don't scare the kids, Pete. Don't scare the kids. No, but I did buy an extra big bag of candy because it's not all going to get put out, and that means I get some. Wear the beret, my friend. (laughs) Yes. The beret is Yeah, and sunglasses. The beret and the sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) Seven threes from the left coast. Seven threes from northern Virginia. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com.